I've been looking forward to this for several weeks. Yesterday, my family and I were aboard the USS Midway at the museum. How good was that, right? If you've been down there, you know. And so uh, our kids really enjoyed it, especially our youngest, Gavin, who is uh, four years old. He was uh, dropping bombs and uh, firing artillery and uh, making all the noise that goes along with it and sitting in the cockpits of some of the fighter jets on the flight deck. It was, uh, it was an amazing time, as any of you who have been there will know. It is um, a pleasure to be with you because also, as Gunnar had said, um, being Dan's brother has always meant uh, that he kind of followed me and rode on my coattails so that when he uh, was in 10th grade Spanish class with Mrs. Mazurko, she recognized that uh, he was Nate's brother. And of course, there was a sense of instant rapport. There was a sense of uh, expectation. Oh, he'll be a good kid. He'll be a good student. He'll be everything that Nate was. And again, by God's grace. Uh, so it is a, it is a real honor uh, to be riding his coattails. And uh, I've told him that. And in fact, uh, we arrived in the U.S. in late May, and uh, after a few days, we're immediately together with all of our family in uh, Tampa, Florida, where my older brother now lives with his family. And so Dan and Kelly were with us and all of the family. And uh, we, had, we had a remarkable time. Uh, we have been blessed as a family to know God, to be known by him, uh, to be loved by him. And also we cherish then uh, the unity that we feel in terms of uh, our relationship in the Lord and our relationship together. Uh, so what I want to do then, if we can bring up the PowerPoint, yeah, perfect. What I want to do then for the next few minutes is share a little bit about uh, who we are, where we're serving, what we're doing, and in what capacity we're serving, uh, and then, and then uh, afterward to do what I do uh, in the classroom. My lectures are usually about three hours long. So the barbecue will be nice and hot, and the meat will be right uh, ready, maybe even blackened. No, I, uh, I've tailored what I'm about to say this morning to uh, fit the allotted time. So this is what we um, have been doing. The flags that you see, Sudan, South Sudan, Kenya, and Ethiopia are all part of our lives. An indelible footprint has been laid upon our hearts by God's Spirit as it relates to our uh, activity in each of these countries. Next slide, please. So when I went out to South Sudan, it was actually still called Sudan. It was still unified. I was a single man. I sat on the couch of my mother's house where all of us grew up, and I was weeping because I thought that uh, serving in South Sudan long-term would mean that uh, I would never have the chance to be married. And I wanted to be married, but I was willing to sacrifice that for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the calling. And so God, I believe in many ways, sometimes he doesn't bless us in these immediate and tangible ways. Uh, but in 2008, uh, I was married to my wife. I'll tell you again afterwards, if you're interested, the whole uh, getting engaged story, it was not smooth. <laughs> uh, there was nothing suave about it. It was just fumbling and innocent. And anyway, it worked out pretty well for us, obviously. Uh, a year and a half, almost a year and a half later, our daughter Karina was born. So this is Amy and Karina uh, in South Sudan uh, and near the house that was being built for us. Next slide, please. So Sudan, when it split politically in 2011, uh, made the, uh, the, the north and the south uh, still uh, political enemies. So the larger uh, nation that you see here on the left split into the north and south. And I'll actually just point, we had been working most unfortunately, but again, uh, according to God's sovereign design, we had been working in Blue Nile State which actually belonged politically to the north. So next slide. As we put down roots and as we built the house and made it uh, a very comfortable place as we were thinking about lifelong ministry there in Blue Nile State. Next slide. We had 
uh, even imported through Amer. Uh, a lot of the uh, floor covering and paint and the materials that we would need to make this concrete brick house into a home. Next slide. So that's what it looked like. Our water barrel out front that contained the water from the river that I would truck in uh, pretty much every day. Uh, we were filtering that. It tasted like fish and other things, but it was clean. Uh, praise God for the Swiss company, Catadyne, that makes uh, water filtration systems. Next slide. This is what happened. Uh, so the northern government uh, went on a bombing campaign to remove ethnic southerners from that uh, Blue Nile area. So the Uruk people, the Maban people, and the Gonza people that we had been working with, the ones among whom we desired and planned to live indefinitely, uh, were chased out of their homelands. This is nothing new for this people group, or these people groups. Uh, they had essentially been on the run for most of the last 50 years, living in refugee camps in northern Kenya, in western Ethiopia, and elsewhere. And so having a house bombed for us was traumatic, but it was also something that God used to help us understand what it means to be homeless in this world, to, to, to live as a kind of permanent refugee. It gave us a sense of what the people groups that we had worked with, it gave us a sense of what they had endured for their entire lives. So we consider this picture a picture of God's grace in many ways. We were not there when the house was bombed. We were not sleeping in it and caught unaware of what was happening. We were actually in Nairobi and, um, and were removed by God's grace from this picture. Next slide, please. So then as we were in Kenya in 2012, uh, the family grew, expanded, so that our second born, our first son, Ethan, uh, was born and was raised there, became uh, an adventuresome young toddler. Next slide. <laughs> Got to feed a giraffe whose head is bigger than his whole body. <laughs> right. Next slide. And then by the summer of 2014, I had been in seminary uh, because, again, the political situation in Blue Nile was increasingly unstable. And so the instability there had us uh, setting our eyes on a spot in Upper Nile State, just bordering Blue Nile, uh, right along the White Nile River, a place called Gideon Theological College, where if it was a hot day like it's going to be today, you'd go and swim in the Nile with the crocodiles and the hippos and the snakes. And the, uh, so I had visited, I had actually sh uh, taught a short course on spiritual warfare, and we were set. Uh, but as soon as the guns were turned away from north and south, uh, they were turned toward one another. And so tribal warfare between the Dinka people and the Nuer people in Upper Nile State prevented us uh, from going into Upper Nile to teach at Gideon Theological College. So as I was uh, set to graduate, we, we really didn't know where we were going to be. We didn't know where we would live. We didn't know how we would sustain our young family. I had graduated with a master's degree in biblical studies, New Testament Greek and exegesis. And so I was looking for a way to serve God's people uh, through theological education. Next slide. And so in the early fall of 2014, and because we had been working with Ethiopian missionaries, missionaries that are indigenous Ethiopians, who had gone into South Sudan with us, it seemed like a very natural fit. It seemed like God's leading that we arrived in Ethiopia. By the way, this is not a prison intake form. <laughs> I had somebody ask me a couple of weeks ago, so, so you've, what happened? I was like, no, 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 that, that's my driver's license. So, so uh, driver's license, and then that's our, our, uh, our home. The kids have grown up there. In fact, we've had a few episodes as we've been back here in North America. A few episodes where as we've been traveling around, the kids become homesick. Not homesick for the United States, of course, because they've grown up in the African setting. Homesick for this beautiful home of ours in Addis Ababa. Next slide. So then spring of 2015, back to Kenya, where Gavin, who is now four years old, was born 
And so I like to say, and this is true according to their birth certificates, that I have an American daughter and two African sons. We had a really good um, situation set up at uh, one of the hospitals there in Nairobi. And I'll use this point to say that uh, while we were in South Sudan, and as we were just praying for the family uh, through, through uh, working with Amer, uh, we actually had flown dozens of times with Amer in and out of uh, Nairobi, Lokichogio in northern Kenya, and into uh, our places either in Blue Nile or Upper Nile State. It was actually the point at that uh, time that we didn't even have a stamp in our passport when we arrived in South Sudan. We would arrive in such a remote jungle or bush location that the only people there to meet us were the army. And the army didn't care about who we were or where we were from, but what we were bringing to give them. So we had some gifts, and we, uh, we never got a stamp in our passports. And so uh, ask me later, we had a border situation between Niagara Falls, uh, Canada, and New York. And I'll tell you about that uh, afterwards. Next slide. So the summer of 26, we were at home in the U.S. We, that was the last time that we had a home assignment. And so we were enjoying the parade. Next slide. Uh, teaching our son to hug the American flag, which I guess has become somewhat popular uh, in these parts. No? Yes? Okay, all right. Uh, and then hugging a goat, which I don't think has any political ramifications whatsoever. Next slide. And then now uh, from 2014 to 2019, right to the present, this is what we have been doing. This is Evangelical Theological College in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which is situated at about uh, 7,500 feet elevation. So the air is very thin. Uh, we do not endure very high temperatures. We're used to the 70s and the 80s. Uh, we do not have humidity. So it's a really, really unique uh, place on the African continent. I've been teaching and blessed to teach New Testament studies. So here you see Andreas Kostenberger's New Testament uh, introduction, Cradle, Cross, and the Crown. Uh, I've taught New Testament 1, 2, and 3. In fact, as we return in the fall, I'll be teaching the Pauline Epistles, which is uh, New Testament 2. I'll be teaching that for the second time. And then I've also been teaching uh, historical theology. So, so how the doctrines of the Christian faith have developed throughout history and then survey of church history as well. That was one of the first courses uh, that I had taught at the college. Actually, what I've done here is I've circled my, my office door. Uh, office number 208, it's the library office. And actually, it's been a remarkable environment in that office, whereby I have kind of existed with a self-imposed monasticism, where I will isolate myself from students and from family and from other distractions. I will even turn off my phone... I will be inaccessible. People on Facebook will be like, hey, are you still alive? No, 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 I'm just in my monastic, self-imposed monastic environment. And, and, I, and I study and pray and seek God's wisdom and look through the pages of the New Testament, how they relate to the old, how Christ is, uh, come, has, has come in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and so forth. So it has been a pleasure for me to work in Office 208. Uh, next slide. We have enjoyed Ethiopia immensely. It's a beautiful place. And in fact, and now I'll be African here, I'm going to invite you to come and visit. And when an African invites you to come and visit, it is impolite to refuse, right? Hospitality dictates that when the invitation is given, it must be followed up upon. So uh, we'll, expect, we'll expect that to uh, become reality. Here is our daughter next to Lake Longano, which is about a three-hour drive south. Next slide. Here we are at one of our uh, favorite spots, about an hour drive. In fact, people, when they've asked us, what's uh, Ethiopia like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? It feels a lot like Southern California the Rocky Mountains, the highways even. We're actually, as we travel, we're looking for the next exit for In-N-Out, and it never comes. Uh, actually, we were at In-N-Out yesterday and had a really good time. Uh, next slide. So uh, we then are in the process of raising some additional support. By God's grace, we have been supported at 90 to 93% over the last two fiscal years. 
uh, which we see as God's provision for us and in us and through us, confirmation of his calling, confirmation of the fact that we are where he has placed us. And uh, so we are seeking then in the various congregations, uh, we're seeking five new financial partners. And what that means is you will reach and extend your gospel influence into a part of the world that we access physically, but you will access in and through us spiritually. God will use you in that way to connect to these students at Evangelical Theological College. So this is how you would do that. And we'll just take a few minutes. I'll just unpack this in case, um, in case you're wondering. So if you feel called, if you feel motivated, please, please respond, respond to that. And we will be so blessed as, as you do. So here's the website, simusa.org. Actually, at this point, let me hand out um, our prayer cards. If I could just get a couple of uh, volunteer helpers. Great, thank you. Uh, go ahead and take one. And if there are not enough, we have, a, we have some extras. Um, the website is indicated on the card. Step one, you would just click on support a missionary. Okay, next slide. Hopefully you have some sort of picture there. Because if you click on support a missionary and then something doesn't come up, uh, just, just keep pushing it and see if it comes through. Or what? Oh, okay. So there's a second slide there, which is okay. Yeah, once you support, once you click on support a missionary, uh, there, will, there will come up a field whereby you would enter our name. My name would suffice, Nathan Kidder, or the missionary number that you see there on the bottom of the card. Once that information comes up, then next slide, this is step three. After you uh, put in the information, Nathan and Amy Kidder, support, that will come up. And by the way, SIM has transitioned in the last 20 years or so, uh, so that all of the support given to us comes to us. They used to pool their support so that better support raisers would get more than they needed and so forth, but uh, they've shifted. So when you give, you give directly to us. And because we are 93% supported, and again, by God's grace, when you give, you're actually giving toward the three things that we're trying to raise support for this time. Uh, number one, Gavin being school-aged will start school in the fall. So you, you would be sending Gavin to the missionary school that SIM runs, Bingham Academy. Uh, number two, Amy then, with a little bit more time on her hands, in the mornings at least, uh, is thinking about uh, rejoining Amharic language school, Amharic being the national language of Ethiopia, and only the language of Ethiopia. So when you learn this language, there's no doubt that you're learning it for these people. Uh, they, are, they are impressed when Westerners learn it, know it well, uh, they, feel, they feel honored in that sense, as most uh, foreigners do. Uh, so, uh, and then three, I'm actually a student again. So teaching and studying. Uh, I've been accepted into the THM, which is a Master of Theology. It's a step between, the, uh, between seminary and PhD sort of studies. It's kind of a... Anyway, you can ask me about that later too. Uh, at the Southern Baptist Theological uh, uh, seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So I'll be studying in a modular program. Uh, so teaching throughout the semesters and then coming to the U.S. for a week at a time, five different times, uh, in order to take the modular courses that are offered there. So as you give, uh, you can know that other areas have been covered and that those three areas are part of how uh, your gift will be used. All right, so then step three, you see our names, you enter 50, 100, 150 a month, uh, and then it's just like online shopping at that point. You add that to your cart, next slide. Once you get to the cart, you just make sure it's all legitimate there, our ID number is there, the total, and so forth, and then you would continue to check out. And if you've been on Amazon or Walmart.com or whatever, you would know how to, how to do it from there, I think. Uh, next slide. Now, uh, for the next few minutes, I want to do what I really love doing. Uh, I want to do what God has called me to do. Actually, I want to show you 
one of the areas that as a theological practitioner, I have by the Spirit of God discerned to be one of the greatest pitfalls for Ethiopian evangelicalism in this modern period. I want to show you the results of what had happened related to a chapel session on the prosperity gospel. I want to go through some of the issues that are facing the Ethiopian church. And so if you have a Bible with you, or if you find one in the, uh, under the chair in front of you, I want you to turn with me, please, to the first epistle of Peter. So 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll actually make our home this morning in verses uh, 9 and 10. But I, but I need to catch you up a bit because Peter has been on about a specific issue that he has seen within the church of the first century, uh, first century Asia Minor to be specific. So Peter has noticed and uh, by God's grace then diagnosed the issue that's happening among the Hellenistic Jewish Christians of first century Asia Minor. He has noticed that as they have left the synagogues, they have, as they have left their uh, brethren in, uh, from Judaism and separated themselves accordingly, they have found themselves estranged from all that they knew as they grew up, from all that they knew um, in their familial ties, all that they knew from their synagogue fellowship. They are now ostracized from that community. Think about today as it is with the uh, Mormons, right? If you are among the Mormon church and you convert to evangelical Christianity, you are ostracized, right? You are out. Your family doesn't talk to you anymore. It was like that for these Jewish Christians of first century Asia Minor. But then they also could not indulge in the forms of worship according to the Roman Empire. The Romans, of course, were famous or infamous pagans, they worshipped the emperor. They worshipped various other deities related to fertility, related to uh, the, the um, rain, related to the earth. And so if you needed a good crop return, you worshipped and made sacrifice to the correct deity. If you wanted to have a son, you worshipped and made sacrifice to the appropriate deity. And if you wanted to be seen as a legitimate citizen in the empire, you said, Caesar is Lord. But of course, this is a problem for these new Jewish Christians, isn't it? Because they believe fundamentally that there is one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. They believe that Jesus is Lord. And so they are now separated from not only their brothers in the synagogue, but they are separated from those who are their neighbors, those in the workplace, those in the marketplace, who are buying and selling and engaging in pagan commerce. So they really belong nowhere. They are a people stranded between the two major cultures of their day. Next slide. So I would like us to experience something of what they experienced. And if you will, in your mind, as we get going in the passage, if you'll imagine with me that we are traveling through space and we are moving from Earth to Mars, okay? So we would need some specialized equipment. We'd need a rocket ship. We would need um, oxygen supplies and so forth, right? You've seen some of these space movies, right? So it doesn't uh, take you too much to imagine. When we arrived on the surface of Mars, we would get out and we'd recognize that there are immediate differences between the two planets. The first thing that we would recognize, especially if our oxygen equipment failed, we would recognize that the saturation in the atmosphere of Mars, the oxygen saturation is less than 1%, where on Earth it had been 21% oxygen saturation. And so again, if our oxygen supply was to falter or was compromised in any way, we would struggle for breath for about five to 10 seconds and or as long as you can hold your breath and we would immediately die. If we were fortunate enough, we would scramble back to the spacecraft, we would get in, buckle our seatbelts, fly back and after about six to 12 months, depending on the alignment of the planets, we would arrive back home on the earth 
and we would get out and we would emphatically declare that Mars was not our home. Why? Because it is not fit to sustain human existence. Right? Next slide. Neither is the earth. Is it? On Mars, we would die after a few minutes. On earth, we will all die after a few decades. What is it then that makes earth our home any more than Mars would be our home? Nothing. Now, let me be very specific here. I want to emphasize that the earth in its present sinful state is not, is not uh, sufficient for sustaining human life. Now, we know from the end of the New Testament. We know from Revelation chapters 20 and tw- 21 and 22 that God will recreate or restore the current earth so that this earth will be our home through eternity forever and human life will, will be sustained perfectly and will flourish. Right? But in its current form, this earth is passing away, is not fit to sustain human life. So I'm hoping then that through all of what follows, I will, by God's, or God by his word, through his spirit, will start to divorce your heart from its love affair with this world as our home. Next slide. So in 1 Peter then, there are three fundamental worldview considerations three fundamental worldview elements that come forth from the text. The background of the text, of course, and I've already been talking about these Jewish Christians of the first century. Uh, Peter then identifies them in chapter 1, verse 1, as elect exiles, uh, or as residing, according to the uh, NAS that you have in front of you, that they are resident aliens, that they are elect exiles, uh, that they are exiles because they do not belong, but that they are elect because they do belong. In a sense, they belong to God. They belong to God because of his eternal decree. They belong to God because of his sovereign election that had happened before they even came into existence. They belong then sociologically to the people of God the people of God who are scattered. Now, Peter will then continue to use images and language that connects the plight of the first century Jewish Christians back to the plight of their ancient ancestors as they had been exiled in Babylon in the early 6th century BC. He will use language that connects them to the Babylonian exile so that as the ancient Hebrews were not at home in Babylon, Peter will say, you are not at home anywhere on this earth. You are not at home anywhere within the Roman Empire. Now, the reason that I can take the exegetical leap and apply this to ourselves is because we're dealing here with the biblical epistolary material. We're dealing with the time frame in the Bible that is post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-establishment of the church. This is why you hear a lot of preachers preach and teach out of the epistles because they are very, very significant and very close and tight in their connection to us. The applicational points then that come out of 1 Peter will be applicational points that relate directly to our own experience because we are in the same uh, redemptive epoch or redemptive era. So then as elect exiles, next next, uh, slide... Peter then identifies in chapter 2, next slide actually, sorry. Peter identifies in chapter 2 three fundamental worldview concepts or elements by which the recipients of his letter and, through extension, the we today by which we are identified, by which we are to be identified. So here's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, purpose statement, 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And let's pray at this point before the exposition of the text. Father, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up, that him being elevated now in our midst, he might draw us to himself. Those who do not know him, perhaps for the first time. Those who have known him for a long time, perhaps in greater depth of intimacy. For the sake of your glory, for the expansion of your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. So we are then a chosen people. This is very countercultural in Ethiopian evangelical circles because of the infiltration of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel I'm defining this morning as a teaching that essentially establishes this world as our home and the material blessings of this world as the substance of God's blessing. Right, So that when we're reading God will bless you and not curse you, what we're reading according to the prosperity gospel is that he will give us all that we need to be healthy, all that we need to be wealthy, all that we need to be comfortable. Okay, So those are the foundational tenets of the prosperity gospel. And they have run wild in Ethiopia. To the point where I have students who have doubted their faith because God is not blessing them. They're driving a Toyota and not a Mercedes. Am I really experiencing the blessing of God in my life? And so they'll come to me as something of an authority, again, by God's grace and goodness, and they'll ask me, am I missing something? Am I doing something wrong? And I will say definitively, no, you are not. Right? So the, the foundational worldview elements here in First uh, Peter 2 fight directly against the notion of our uh, belonging to this world and fight directly against the foundational tenets of prosperity teaching. As a chosen people then, we belong to God. We belong to God, as Peter will say here in the bookend, right? He w- we, as his own possession. We are a people for God's own possession. As a people then that belong to God, we are then subject to his new covenant law. It is a new covenant law that draws us out of ourselves. What does Jesus say about the law? Love the Lord your God outside of ourselves with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So all of these are drawing outside of ourselves, bringing us into relationship greater and deeper and higher with God and with our fellow man. We belong not to ourselves. We belong to God. We belong to him as subject to his new covenant law. As those who belong to God, then we will never be truly free until we are free in subjugation to him. Now on the fourth, we celebrated freedom. Please hear me very carefully here. I believe that freedom is the great deception of our day. I believe that freedom is the great deception of our day. What do I mean by that? As long as Satan can keep people thinking that they are free to pursue their own ends, free to pursue their own wealth or their health or their prosperity, free to pursue whatever they wish to pursue, he has them in bondage. He has them trapped, as it were, within this great deception. Freedom is found biblically when we are subjugated to God. So if we are apart from God, there is no freedom. So brothers and sisters, the people who live next door to you, waving American flags and celebrating the 4th of July, that's great, but that's an opportunity for you to say to them, there is no freedom apart from God and apart from subjugation under him. We were never created to be free. Some will say that the uh, original sin, right? Adam in the garden picking of and eating of the fruit after his wife had done so. 
they will say that um, Adam's sin was a sin of autonomy, being a law unto himself, deciding to follow himself. Actually, if you look at the text very carefully, it's not that Adam decides to follow his own wishes. Whose wishes, uh, whose wishes does he follow? The serpent, ultimately. Yes, his wife's, you're right, as the intermediator. Yeah, you're right. It's the serpent, right? So ultimately, if you follow it all the way back in the text, it is a decision about authorized voices. Authorized voices, is it not? The authorized voice of God, whom Moses in writing the Pentateuch says, is the creator The authorized voice of God is authenticated. The authorized voice of the serpent does not have authentication. But Adam chooses to listen to him. So the fundamental role of a a being who is created, you and me, the fundamental role for us is which voice will we follow? Which voice will we be subjected to? So in the garden, the challenge is, will you listen to God or will you listen to the serpent? And that's what's happening in our world today. Uh, There are two different kinds of people. And only one kind is free. Those who are listening, obeying, and finding themselves in subjugation to God. So we do not believe that we are free to determine our own lives or to build our own societies We believe instead that true freedom lies in the subjection of ourselves to God. We then find and recognize that our own good is not something we determine for ourselves. Now that's radical. When we talk about suffering for the sake of Christ, we're talking about this kind of suffering. That whatever God sends into our lives, we accept with the joy that he provides by his spirit so that we pray not to escape suffering, but to endure under the hand of God, willingly submitted to him. Whether it's cancer, whether you feel like you're in an unhappy marital union, you are, you are first and foremost submitted under the will of God forsaking your health, forsaking your happiness because you are devoted wholeheartedly to the king. Which actually brings us to the next point. So we are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. In terms of royalty, the prosperity teaching will say, well, there you are, you're sons of the king. So you ought to inherit the kingdom. But of course, we recognize that the inheritance of the kingdom is something of the not yet Right? That we will inherit the kingdom in the future when we are glorified, when we are brought into immediate fellowship with God through Christ. So uh, we are waiting for this. But, but the other point that the Bible is very clear on is that our royalty, our authority is only ever a derivative authority. So that those who speak according to the word of God speak the authority of God mediated by his spirit through the word. So there is no authority other than that which is found in relationship to the king. So we are princes, we are princesses in a very real sense, but our relationship to the king is what matters. Our royalty is a derivative royalty or authority. It is only and always to be subjected and used according to the service of the king and the expansion of his kingdom. So we are nothing more than that. We are nothing less, but we have a derivative authority. Sorry, I should have said next slide there. Yeah, that's the next point. So a royalty, a derivative royalty, and then we are a priesthood. And of course, this again is language from the Old Testament. The priest was the mediator between God and man. He was supposed to mediate the relationship, offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, and so forth. So we then are mediators. We are channels. We are conduits between God and the people that are in our spheres of influence. As conduits, then, there are a few dangers, and these dangers surface very explicitly in the teaching of prosperity gospel. One of the dangers would be that the channel ought to be lined with gold, right? That the conduit in blessing others should be a conduit lined with gold. But we recognize immediately that the messianic conduit, Christ's himself, was was lined with, with blood, 
wasn't it? And that the Calvary road is the road that is marked out before all those who would follow after Christ. So that danger is possible. There is a second danger. It would be thinking that the conduit should be a one-way conduit, which means that as God blesses others and they attempt to praise God for it, the conduit stops and becomes something of a reservoir and not a riverbed. That the blessing either stops with me or the praise that is intended to go back to God stops with me so that I look great, so that I look good, so that I look like I am praiseworthy when God alone should receive praise. We are two-way conduits. We are riverbeds and not reservoirs. As two-way conduits, when God blesses others through us and the praise then is given to God, it ought to go up and through us as well. So priests as conduits, priests as those who are uh, channels of God's blessing, rightly mediated to God's people, going up and down so that the blessed community of faith is one that experiences God's blessing and rejoices in him for it. So we are chosen, we are a chosen people, not belonging to ourselves, but belonging to God, finding freedom, the only freedom in subjection to God and his will. We are also a royal priesthood. And next slide. We are a holy nation. As a holy nation, then we are called to be distinguished from our surroundings We are not to be a blend-in people, but a stand-apart people. Not a secular people, but a sacred people, sanctified by God and abstaining from the passions of the world that wage war against our soul. Now, this is not to be confused with a political nation, but, but you know this. I'm just pointing out what is evident to you already. This is a nation that transcends politics, that transcends geographical or ethnic borders. This is a nation that is inclusive of all tongues and tribes and peoples and nations, inclusive in the sense that they must believe in Christ. So inclusive, exclusive in those terms. So not a political nation, but a, but a, an entity that transcends these, uh, transcends and finds themselves uh, following God's direction, obeying God's commands, uh, using our gifts according to God's will. So a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Now, there are three objections, and I'll, I'll be very brief here, so, so please hang with me. Again, I'm used to, t- to speaking for like three hours and uh, trying to... So next slide, please. Sorry, no, yeah, there we go. Here are the, so three objections then. Uh, and this is coming from the student body at the college where I teach, and this was part of the chapel program where they were interacting with me and asked these very questions Um, objections that surface from the pillars of prosperity teaching. So uh, objection number one. What about Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17? All right. So uh, the context here is that Jesus is engaged in the early Galilean part of his ministry. So he's moving about and he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but he is proclaiming it with signs and wonders. He is proclaiming it according to the healing that he provides and provides extensively. So in Matthew, what he's doing, he is healing all, all sicknesses, all infirmities, all diseases. He's casting out all demons. And Matthew says this happens according to the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. That he has bared all, born, he has borne all of our iniquities and, and so forth. So, so the prosperity teaching says, yeah, we understand that we must follow Christ. But the, the way of Christ, as he has provided, is a way of healing, is a way of health, wealth, and ultimately of prosperity. So, so how, how do we answer this objection? Are we meant to be healed? If we have enough faith, can we unlock the storehouse of heavenly goodies by which we are then healed? When my father died, and I'll just be very honest, he committed suicide after a bout of depression. Uh, 
um, after he had died, uh, there were some in my church who had said, you know, if your father had enough faith, he would have been healed. You know what my response was? He was healed. Where did he go? Right? He is now in the kingdom. Uh, and you can ask me about the theological implications of that at some point too later on if you so choose. But he is healed. And we do all receive healing in the kingdom. So what, what does Matthew intend to teach? What does Jesus intend to identify about himself when he is healing people according to this Matthew chapter 8 context? Well, I would say to you that Matthew's uh, use of prophetic fulfillment is not to promise everything that, uh, that the Messiah would do, but to identify him according to a specific pattern. I'll give you an example. We all know this from Christmas, right? Where um, Matthew uses Isaiah 7:14. He shall be born of a virgin and they shall call his name Emmanuel, right? Well, Mary and Joseph did not actually name him Emmanuel or we would be worshiping Emmanuel Christ. They named him Yeshua, right? So, so did they miss the fulfillment? Did they, did they, what was happening? Matthew uses prophetic fulfillment to identify who Jesus is. Who is he? Isaiah 7, 14, God with us, right? So now when he is using in chapter eight, a a fulfillment pattern that comes out of Isaiah 53, what is he doing? Is he teaching that Jesus will heal everyone who asks immediately? Not necessarily. Of course, in the kingdom, everyone who follows Christ will be healed. But if if, if you're here and you have some sort of Uh, ailment and you have been praying and you have been listening to prosperity teaching on the internet or wherever and then they're saying that there is something faulty in your faith and that's why God is not healing you please please turn those voices off what is a greater demonstration of faith seeking escape from affliction or enduring it indefinitely because you trust God in all things And I would suggest to you the latter. So what Matthew is doing in chapter 8, he is identifying Jesus. Who is he? Now the first century Jew would have expected a Davidic conqueror, right? This is one who is coming to dispel all of the enemies from the Holy Land, who is coming to defeat the Romans, set up the kingdom of God, reign forever on the throne of David. Now, there's nothing wrong with that expectation. All right, 2 Samuel 7 says there, there will be an eternal son of David who sits on his throne forever. It's just that it's not balanced or, or, or uh, appropriately uh, identified in terms of uh, redemptive epochs or eras, right? There will be a coming Davidic warrior. And Revelation chapter 19 paints the most beautiful picture of the rider on the white horse and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, right? He will conquer all who stand in opposition to him. The Davidic warrior is coming, but not in his first appearance. Who is he in his first appearance? He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, quoted in Matthew 8. You see, see what Matthew's doing then? identifying who, who is this one who claims to have a messianic authority but is not driving out the Romans. Oh, he's the suffering servant. The Isaionic model is the first appearance of Christ, the Davidic model in the second appearance. Okay. So Matthew is identifying. Jesus is promising not to heal everyone in the here and now. But of course, we wait for that expectantly. Number two, what about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verses 8 through 9? And again, you can turn there if you want to see it. Uh, otherwise, I'll just give you the idea of the text. There, prosperity teachers will say, all right, in fact, let me actually turn there so I don't butcher the paraphrase. Uh, 2 Corinthians, yeah, I could have had it memorized. Sorry, it's, uh, we're still on a little bit of jet lag. Uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 8 Verses 8 and 9. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And here's the the crux of one of the arguments from prosperity teaching. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And they say, there you go. So, so uh, we understand, says the prosperity gospel uh, prophets, we understand uh, that following Jesus uh, means following him according to his own suffering, but the suffering that he endured was for the sake of your richness, your riches, the riches of your inheritance. They've got us here, don't they? <laughs> well, let's look at the logic of the text. I mean, just very briefly, what's the logic of the text? Uh, one option would be to say, well, Jesus was rich in terms of an earthly bank account, right? He was born to a wealthy carpenter who clearly had a bank account of sheep and goats set aside there and, and reserved them in Bethlehem, right? So that when Jesus was born, he was born into a situation of wealth. And when he wanted to bless his disciples, he sold some of the sheep and some of the goats and he sold his father's carpentry business, right? And he bestowed an inheritance upon his 12 disciples, right? Is that, no, <laughs> right? No, okay. So where is Jesus and his riches? Where, where is that? That though he was rich, he became poor. Rich in the heavenly realms, right? Rich in the kingdom, the, the heir of all things, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom and by whom and for whom all things are created, Right, So he leaves the heavenly realm, he embraces poverty in the earthly realm so that you, through his poverty, might become rich on this earth. But see now, the logic of the text is completely destroyed. You, through his poverty, might gain the same riches that he had in eternal glory in the kingdom. Right? So, so... Do you, do you feel the earthquake? I mean, not literally, not literally. Do you feel the earthquake, the pillars of prosperity gospel crumbling now under the weight of biblical truth? We have set them on very precarious points. Now, number three. Um, so th- we understand, again, say the prosperity prophets. We understand about Job. Right? We understand about the suffering of Israel in the Old Testament. But God works differently now in the New Testament than he had worked in the Old. Now we are operating in the post-resurrection time of redemptive history. So that now God has, through Christ, provided power to all of his people that with enough faith they might command sicknesses out of their bodies, that they might command wealth in their businesses or in their financial investments, that they might sow a seed and reap a blessing, right, that, that he has provided. So again, when my father died, uh, some would have said to me that uh, if your father had enough faith, he would have realized the healing that God had already provided for him through Christ on the cross and he would have commanded the depression to leave him. Is that right? I mean, I'm seeing all sorts of people doing this. I mean, not here in Valley Center, right? But like everywhere else in Ethiopia or maybe here as well, I don't know. I've got informants that are speaking to me here in my headpiece. Yes, okay, it is happening, Valley Center. So, so, <laughs> what, do we, what do we say to this, right? Uh, does God work differently? I need you to see this, actually. Uh, let's turn to um, Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1, and this will most definitively answer the question. Um, God has not left us without truth. Philippians chapter 1, and I'll wait until I hear pages stop turning because I, I really, I want you to see this in the word, okay? Okay. 
Actually, I'll read 28 and 29, just so you understand who the principal actor is here. Um, Well, okay, from 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Philippians 1.27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. So now he leaves us with the idea that God is the principal actor in the passage. So when we have here, verse 29, for to you it has been granted. When we see the passive voice of the verb, we understand that who has granted it to us? God, who is the principal actor in the passage. So for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be ongoing, essentially, in me. So there are two things. Now we're dealing with post-death, post-resurrection, post-ascension. So the redemptive era in which we find ourselves, is God working differently now than he did in antiquity? Here we read that there are two things granted to us by God. Now, you need to know that this verb, it has been granted, is the Greek for, is the Greek, ekariste. Charis, do you hear that word in there? Do you know what that word means? Grace, right? When we talk about charis, we talk about the grace of God. When we talk about charismata, we're talking about the spiritual gifts, Some have gifts of helping. Some have gifts of teaching. Some have gifts of tongues. Some have gifts of prophecy, right? 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. We're talking about the charismata, the grace gifts. So that when Paul uses the verb, ekariste, what is he saying? It has been grace gifted to you. Two things. To know Christ and to suffer for him. This is God's grace gift to those who follow him. What that means now, most people in the North American context, when I speak and engage in conversation, they say, Nate, uh, we're not actually suffering for Christ. Oh, but you are. It's not that you're getting beat up on the street corner because you're proclaiming the gospel in a foreign place, although this is becoming a foreign place to the gospel, isn't it? But suffering, as I've already identified, might mean that you are not seeking escape from affliction, but that you are enduring it because you trust God in all things. Hear the prayer of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Let your will be done. Right? Christ stays under the sovereign hand of God in the suffering that he endures. Perhaps you have committed through covenantal vows to a marital union in which you are now not feeling happy. And you refuse to seek divorce because you uphold the value of covenantal union before your happiness. You are suffering for Christ. You are upholding Christ's values in a world that so easily seeks escape from covenantal union. I hate to quantify it because now you'll think of it in terms of these are the benchmarks or the hallmarks, but God by his spirit, and I've been praying for you already, God by his spirit will show you ways in which you would suffer for Christ. You would suffer for Christ when you think more about investment in the kingdom than investment in fidelity accounts. Those those kinds of things. And you're already doing that as you tithe, as you give, as you seek God and his kingdom first. So the three objections I think we have rightly and biblically and definitively answered. So we then are elect exiles. We are aliens and strangers. 
We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This world is not our home. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen and amen.